Welcome back to the AEC Disruptors Podcast, your platform to help push the AEC industry forward. I'm your host, Christopher Riddell, and on today's episode, we had uh, Dr. Debbie Phillips return for a second episode. Uh, the first one was so jam-packed with information that we just needed to get her back in. And, and on this one, we really dove deeper into this idea of how do we drive engagement? How do we do it from an employer perspective and also the employee perspective? We talked about some terms I'd never heard of. We talked about this idea of accidental diminisher and what do we need to do to avoid that as an employer? And then from the employee perspective, this idea of the 12 elements of engagement. It was really informative. It was a great talk. And I hope you get to listen to it, enjoy, and check back for more. Join us back for another episode it is Dr. Debbie Phillips, president of the Quadrillion. Uh, I thought the last one was so good. We didn't have enough time, so we had another one. How's it going, Dr. Debbie? It is fantastic. Thank you for having me back. And I'm excited to share some more about engagement and recruiting and talent development. Absolutely. I'm super excited to kind of continue this conversation. Um, and so I want to kick it off with, we got a little bit of this on the last time. So the last time when we talked, uh, we talked about uh, this great reshuffle we're involved in this, you even called it the employee empowerment era and the, the desire and the need to create an engaging culture. We didn't dive too deep into that, but we talked a little bit about what that meant and how that impacts talent satisfaction, talent retention. So before we dive deeper, um, I'd like to get a little bit more background on you as an individual and really what has kind of driven you or what is your passion? Because it seems like, and I've gathered this through articles about you and awards you've gotten, you're really looking at how you can help promote and support women and minorities and underserved. I mean, what got you here to, to think that's so important to you? Well, if you remember our days back at Georgia Tech, you know, we would talk about the opportunities and, and I use two different words, chance and choice. Many people fall into their careers by chance. Now, I know they go to school for architecture and construction and engineering and all of that, but really landing the actual opportunity is not necessarily predictable. And I think my passion really started coming out of a place where I saw a lot of students dip their toe in the water, but they didn't really have a predictable way to explore career opportunities. And so I shared with you on our last call, I'm working with a project and it was really originated out of the University of Alabama. And I have an undergrad from Georgia and a PhD from Georgia Tech. So I never thought I would be saying roll tide ever in my life. But when companies come with uh, an opportunity to make connections in careers, I'm, I'm gonna show up no matter what team. But I got involved in the project because I wanted to help students find a career of choice, not of chance. 
And when you were a student, you remember this, we had a lot of guest speakers in our classes. Mm -hmm. And I think that is one of the things that I, I love most about my non-traditional teaching style. I wanna teach what's not in the book. Anybody yep. can go find something in a book or on Google, but the currency today is relationships, friends. And that's what, that's what got us on this call again. We reconnected. Yep. But the intersection of my work is really between workforce development, education, and the built environment. So when we talk about careers of choice, not chance, today, people have more choices than ever before. But the missing link is actually making that connection. And that's why I wanted to come back today, Chris, and talk about both on the supply side and the demand side. We have employers that need high potential talent, and we have, you know, the talent that's looking for high performance cultures. And there's a difference between a weak culture and a strong culture, and it comes through leadership. Well, I'm excited to have you back. Um, and how fitting, I mean, I, you know, with March being Women's History Month, and then even seeing, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention on several occasions, I've seen you've been named uh, Women of Influence um, by Globe Street, and you have a, a heavy impact in the area. So I'm super excited. So if we shift gears a little bit, so like I said before, uh, we started talking about employee engagement. Uh, but we didn't dive too deep. We talked a little bit about the culture aspect. And when we discussed, like, what would what do we want to give the rest of our audience? It was, let's talk about how we can drive engagement from two perspectives. How do we drive engagement from the employer perspective? And then how do we drive engagement from the employee perspective? So let's first start. Um, I want to start with the employer first. Before we even do that, in your perspective, what does drive engagement even mean? Okay. And, and I want to cover this because this is big, big, big. A satisfied employee says, I like my work. An engaged employee says, I love my company. If you look at the work of Clifton and Buckingham, you probably read those books, Discover Your Strengths and all of that. Clifton defined engagement back in, you know, 2005, 2006 as an employee that uses their discretionary effort. So you've got about 20% of the workforce is truly engaged. You have another 60% of the workforce that's just enrolled. And then the other 20% is totally and completely disengaged and they're looking for a job while they're on somebody's payroll. So this notion of engagement is really based on somebody thinking creatively, somebody thinking about, you know, how do I innovate? How do I bring best practices to life? How do I raise my hand and challenge leadership? I mean, all of those things really create a high performance culture. And Chris, this is between, this is before I even met you. 
when I started my journey on my PhD, my hypothesis was employee engagement drives profits to the bottom line. Well, you know, they're not going to let us out of Georgia Tech without a fight. I mean, you got to, <laughs> you got to, you know, you got to hunker down in that. In that you respect. get out. That's and how get you, out. what happens. <laughs> exactly. So it took me five years to prove that. And my major professor, my major professor said, you've got to prove it. And it took me five years to prove that engagement does drive profits. And so I thought today it would be great because there's this, what I call kind of uh, not really a, a, an understanding, but you got to meet in the middle somewhere. An employer has to say, I want to have a great culture. And employees have to say, I choose to give my time, my talent, and my treasure to that organization. So I thought it would be really neat if we could talk about those drivers of engagement. I think that's, I think it's going to set up for a great discussion. And in fact, you know, it's, when you say that engagement drives profitability in a way, it almost now seems like, yeah, of course it does. Um, and the fact that we had to prove that because What's interesting is we find ourselves even um, what I do a lot, uh, we go into these companies and, and similar to the quadrillion, we, we help consult in the areas of, you know, architecture and whatever it may be. And a lot of people are coming to us because they want to be more productive. They want to be more efficient. Um, and a lot of that is driving, you know, the revenue, the bottom line. Um, but something we don't talk about a whole lot, uh, we focus on the automation aspect of it. Hey, I can do this or we can improve your culture we don't talk about the engagement aspect. Um, and so I think that's pretty compelling. So let's start with the employer, um, you know, from your perspective, and I did a little bit of research on, you know, what it means to maybe engage um, the employer. Um, and I'll start off full disclosure. Normally on, when we record AEC disruptor episodes, we have really great weather in Atlanta. And right now we don't. So if I disappear, it's because there's a thunderstorm outside. <laughs> so I should mention that to, to you and everyone else, but in general. Um, so I was looking a little bit about employee engagement. One thing that came up is this idea about it's really important to communicate your vision and goals out of the gate before we can even get to engagement. You know, what is your perspective on that? And then how do we start if we're educating an employer? You know, where do they start to helping drive that engagement? Well, first of all, we know that there's, you know, what, five generations now in the workplace. And we still have some traditionalists, and I'm a baby boomer. But a lot of times employers forget that you've got this wide range of generations. And you got to meet people where they are. And I think that we know that Gen Y and Gen Z are very focused on corporate social responsibility. And I get really cranky when I see things on a website, but then you do employer employee interviews and you do surveys and there's this disconnect. We hear a lot about ESG, environmental, social, and governance. And companies today are saying, hey, we do want to be more responsible. But the rubber meets the road when you say you want it, but 
you don't have a way for your employees to express themselves. Maybe a day of volunteerism at a charity or a, a you know a group of their choice or something. And, and the only reason I, I mentioned those examples is for somebody to be very engaged, they got to relate to the mission, vision, and values of that company. You know, it's interesting you mentioned like the, the charitable days, um, and I've seen firms that offer that, but, you know, does it become more of just a marketing ploy if I offer it, but then I don't encourage you to use it? Because I feel like that happens a lot where, hey, you get a charitable day if you want to use it at your discretion, uh, but there's not no one's sitting there and not forcing and you don't need to force it. But we're not even encouraging people to use it. We're just saying you have it. And another thing that, you know, when you talk about, and we, we see these uh, employee groups, these, uh, you know, interest groups, shared interest communities and, and those kind of things within companies. And it's amazing to me that these things are set up normally through an HR department. But a lot of times you never see senior leadership participate in those discussions. Now, I'm not saying that's the case in everything, but I think it's important for leadership to not just throw money and, and put a, you know, assign a work group to it. And Chris, we talk about this a lot, and I hate the word initiative, because I'm like, at the end of the day, we need to be immersed in it, whatever it is. There was a great article in Harvard Business Review not too long ago about initiative overload. It was actually the lead article in the, in the Harvard Business Review. So out there in our audience today, all of you employers, I want you to streamline and I want your team members to know what is truly something that you want to be immersed in. Let's be careful about just painting the website and painting the discussion with a bunch of initiatives. And it, it's interesting that when, again, when I did a little bit of research and I was just saying like, how do you drive engagement as an employee? So much started with communicating that vision uh, because, and it makes a lot of sense. It's hard to get buy-in for anything if you don't understand why we're doing it. Mm -hmm. And you know um, that Simon Sinek book, you know, start with why. I, mm -hmm. I love, 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 love. And for your audience, uh, I'm not going to get off the, the presentation without giving you some great books. And all the Simon Sinek books are fantastic. Start with Why Eater, uh, Leaders Eat Last and The Infinite Game. That's a beautiful collection of wisdom. Absolutely. And I don't know, I just, the way he delivers his message is, is so well done. So I, I think it's great. So, okay, we, we're, as an employer, we need to make sure we're communicating our vision and our goals first off. If we even want to get to engaging our culture, anyone for that matter, um, then then the next step. So we've communicated those. What is it? Is it like an employee reach out? I mean, what is it we need to do, especially nowadays where so many of us are remote, which I think that makes it probably even harder because you're out of sight, out of mind. You know, what is that next step that employer needs to do to really try to get people excited and, and engaged in what they're doing? Well, I have a whole presentation about kind of the title of it's keeping the flames burning in a hybrid uh, workplace. 
because now we're seeing that there are opportunities. Employees are coming in two days, three days, four days. Some of them are not at all. They're working 100% uh, remotely. And I always, you know, go back to that Simon Sinek, start with why. We need to do check-ins with our team members, not just task-oriented, not just focused on, you know, what, what's happening with that particular client or that particular project. And I think this goes beyond what I call the virtual happy hour. I think it's scheduling the one-to-ones. It's saying, hey, what's going on with you? And I wanna give your audience a little acronym for family, occupation, recreation. What's going on with your family? And it's not to be nosy. It's just, you know, the more you know about somebody, the deeper you can care about them. Um, so, you know, what are some of the things that's going on uh, in your job, your occupation? You know, um, have you, what are you reading about your industry? And then recreation, what are you doing for fun? I think we need to, and, and employers are recognizing more of the need for mental health and, and wellness and balance, but there's no substitute in the whole wide world for just checking in and not being so um, tied to an agenda. I, I uh, you know, it kind of reminds me of some of those videos I've seen of Simon before where, you know, he's real big on an uh, employees not meeting their targets. And he kind of goes through two demonstrations of a, you know, a manager and maybe a great manager. And the manager says like, hey, you're not meeting your targets. We need you to do better. And then the great managers like you're not meeting your targets. Is everything OK? Right. And it's I think it's a great um, it really makes a lot of sense if we look at this idea of four, uh, because, again, the work is just a part of part of what we do. Um, and I've seen employees uh, not not do very well. And it's because they had stuff going on at home. And I even myself in a younger life was harsh on those employees, maybe not to their face, but just sure. in general, I've, I felt some animosity because maybe I was working really hard. And not till I got older did I become empathetic enough to realize that this is a small part of their life. Right. And, you know, they could be going through a divorce or a sick child or, Ill, you know, whatever it may be. And so um, at Applied Software, one of the things we talk a lot about when we're doing some consulting is this idea of we lean on this, the agile project management um, framework for a lot of stuff that we do. But one thing that comes out of that is this idea of very short daily stand-up meetings. And it could be five minutes, um, but I think there's a lot to be said when we talk about, hey, let's have some more routine check-ins. Why not have them more frequent so that we are touching base with those employees? We don't forget that they're remote um, and then hold true to the, to the schedule. I mean, I've had, I've had meetings before in the past, maybe performance reviews that get canceled or rescheduled or not rescheduled. And that makes you feel a certain kind of way when that happens. Um, so I think that idea of kind of continuously checking in is a great way to, to, to make that, make that jump. And, and, you know, you look at the, the best in class companies, um, they all have a huddle and, you know, when it's more intense on customer, uh, interface, they have a huddle every day, kind of just a 15 minutes in the morning and a 15 minutes in the afternoon. And I'm not saying that we have to do that you know, every day, but um, 
one of my great mentors, George Lane, he passed away a few years ago and he ran probably one of the most successful real estate companies, the Lane Company. He was a master. He probably, you know, lived out Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people better than anybody I knew in a, in a very, you know, uh, genuine way. But he would never jump into business in a conversation until he just emotionally connected with his audience first. And I learned a lot about that. Those emotional connections are powerful. The, uh, my wife works for a firm that practices um, the EOS yeah. operating system. It's like yeah. entrepreneurial operating system, whatever. Uh -huh. And one of the things, and there's a lot of great things that come out of that book, but one of the things, um, so they give this to, they give this book to all their employees. It's like, what the heck is EOS? And I, I read it because I was interested when she sure. got it. And one of the things that they talk about in all their meetings, and, and I've heard her meetings, they do this, uh, is share your good news. And so in every meeting they do, the very first thing that they do is they go around the table and say, share your good news. And it's not work related. It's anything. It could be that, you know, I went outside today. I went for a walk this weekend, whatever it may be. Um, and the book talks about one, it helps, if nothing else, it helps get the meeting started. It kind of, you know, gets everybody loose, uh, but it also gives you a little bit of insight, very quick insight into each person's life and, and a lot can come out of that. So, I mean, I think it's so important uh, when we talk about engagement to ask non-work related questions. I love that quote. It says, be gentle with everyone for everyone is fighting a battle of their own. And absolutely. Many times people come with their mask on and they're fighting a battle we know nothing about. The AEC Disruptors podcast is brought to you by Applied Software. With solutions for the modern project, Applied Software is on a mission to transform industries by empowering clients and champion innovation with real-world expert consultants. Their comprehensive array of solutions for the AEC, MEP, and manufacturing has a singular focus, helping you achieve higher performance. With software, training, support, consulting, and custom development, Applied Software has you covered. Visit asti.com and let them know we sent you. Yep, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I, at one point I always thought, um, you know, when I go for walks and I think about stuff and I was like, oh, maybe I should write up my own, maybe I need a journal or I need to create a memoir of myself, not for anyone to read, but at one point in time, I thought of this term, I call I was thinking of it like as an invisible mask. Like everyone wears an invisible mask because they may come and look like everything's totally cool. But there's always something that we don't know um, kind of behind that invisible mask. So you mentioned this other term when we talked before uh, about what we wanted to discuss today. And I think it's kind of relevant on the employer side. And it, it's a term I'd never heard before. It's this idea of an accidental diminisher. Uh, can you First, kind of tell us what that is, and then, you know, what do we do to avoid becoming an accidental diminisher? Well, I want to call your attention to Liz Weissman's book, Multipliers. And an accidental diminisher, and if you go on that website, the Multipliers book, there's, uh, she's got a reading guide with her book. And the one thing I took the little survey and 
I was thinking, you know, I'm a, I'm a gung-ho, passionate leader. And on a scale of one to 100, I scored a 32. And I'm like, wait, this can't be right. And I realized that I was an accidental diminisher. And what that means is, and, and I, I'm completely transparent, I am so guilty of wanting something to be radically successful that I'm guilty sometimes of taking the problem away or, you know, maybe stealing the, the spotlight or whatever. And, and I'm, I, it comes really out of passion. And so there's a great part in that book, and I couldn't wait to share it with your audience today. And it's called Playing with Fewer Chips. And maybe we go into a meeting and we think that we are wanting to get 10 things accomplished. Well, let's just pick three. Because I recognized when I did the survey and learned that I was an accidental diminisher, I can be a helicopter boss or leader. And instead of asking somebody, how are you going to approach that project? I run in there with my little recipe. This is what you need to do. Yep. And that's one thing. And then learning to talk last instead of first and learning to ferret out and bubble out maybe all of the objections and putting those topics on the table early and often um, instead of kind of shying away from the elephant in the room, so as to speak. And it just when I looked at the scores, I recognized that there was such great opportunity for me to grow. And I always say, you know, the biggest room in the entire world is the room for growth. Um, so I'm excited and I'm practicing that. And I just want everybody, I want everybody in, in, on your audience, in your audience to go and check that, that survey out because it's just a great check-in with yourself. Um, and you know, it's funny because actually until you describe that, because when I, I looked it up, I was curious. So I looked up a definition and the definition I found was Let's see, a well-intended leader often following popular management practices who subtly and completely unaware shuts down the intelligence of others. Um, but not until you described it. And so I, when I read that, I'm like, oh, I don't know how much of that I do. Maybe I probably do some of it. But when you described it, it really resonates because I consider myself a fixer and I have this desire to help. And I think that's rooted in the um, my upbringing. I'm um, have a single mom, I'm the oldest of five. And so I've been used to fixing problems. Uh, that's just what I do. Uh, and I think I'm good at it, even if I'm not. But what I've realized, especially being married, is sometimes people don't want their problems fixed. They just want to hear. And so I would not hear whether it was my wife or at work, somebody would say, you know, I have this issue. I'm jumping to how to fix it. Uh, and it, it is out of passion. Like, I want to help you. But then I, and I completely miss, and sometimes they get upset. Like, why are you upset? I'm here to help you. And then I don't even realize that they don't want help. They just, they need me to, they want to be heard and they don't want me to fix it. They just need to be able to tell me what's going on. And so I'm, I think I'm guilty too of being an accidental diminisher. So it's something I'll have to work on as well. 
Well, it's also comes, you know, um, there's this thought of perfectionism. Sometimes I can't leave well enough alone and I want to nitpick it and I want to, you know, continue to revise and iterate and ideate and all of those great things. But I think sometimes, you know, and you've probably heard of 360s. I don't know if y'all do it um, at your company or not, but that's another way to kind of check in. I mean, we all have blind spots. If you look at the Jahari window, you know, there's things we know about ourselves that no, nobody knows. And there's things that no one knows and we don't mm -hmm. even know. And I think that it's just, it's a great opportunity for self-development and professional development is to just practice these things. Like, you know, I'm practicing right now thinking about if I could only choose just a few things, what would that be? My mom used to say, that's a hill you want to die on. You know, I'm trying to pick my heels more carefully. Um, you know, and that, that comment you made about even maybe has nothing to do with leadership or uh, engagement, but you know, kind of talk last, I think is a really important skill for anyone to learn. Cause again, I felt guilty of that when I was a younger professional, because, you know, I get invited into the room um, and I felt like I needed to be heard. And the only way to do that was to talk and talk loudly and talk first. Right. And part of it out of was, you know, I felt like I had all these great ideas and I didn't want to, I wanted to share them. I didn't want somebody else to share them. And then the older I got, I realized by talking last gives you such an advantage because if nothing else, you get to hear everyone else's stuff and you can react to everyone else's stuff. And, and I think what you have to be able to do is you have to be able to let go of like the ownership of whatever that may be, because I may have an idea. And if somebody presents it first, they get all of the accolades. I shouldn't take that personal. I should just be glad that my idea was also a good idea. Um, so talking last is so important for really anyone, whether you're in driving engagement or not. So with that said, we're now getting more to the employee side. So we've talked a little bit about how an employer can drive engagement, you know, make sure we're sharing our vision and goals, make sure we're, we're connecting with our employees. How are we, are we accidental diminishers or not? So let's switch gears a little bit to the employee side. Um, and from the sounds of it, there is a responsibility on the employee side to drive engagement. So, so what is it you think that they need to be doing to help sort of balance the scales? Well, I think, you know, and I, I do want to also say, you know, when we were talking about kind of showing up, I think there's a time and a place that we need to know when to speak up and specifically what to ask for. A lot of times... I've been guilty of saying, oh, call me if you need some help. Well, now I'm asking a more directed question. I'm saying specifically, what might I help you with? And if you look at the elements of engagement, one of the very first things is clear expectations. I know what is expected. And if you, um, one of my very favorite mentors and one of my very favorite bosses of all times, um, he used to give us the book, The Game of Work. And every employee had to read The Game of Work because he wanted us to know how to keep score and how he kept score. 
And so I think as employees, number one, we need to have clear expectations. But number two, we need to be able to ask for the materials and equipment to do our jobs. Um, you know, during the pandemic, I had several clients and they have such strong cultures. They wanted to make sure that every employee had the right setup at their house in terms of their computer, in terms of, you know, the connectivity. And so I think that these last 24 months have really put a spotlight on what does it take to have a, a strong culture? But the engaged employee has to speak up and they have to say, hey, these are the materials and equipment that I need. So that's another great place to start. I remember actually reading one time, um, I think it may have been in like, I don't know, email etiquette or something, but it talked about avoiding the line, let me know if you have any questions and be very direct and ask like, what do you think about this? Um, and not not be so open-ended. So, I mean, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Um, there's before, and I don't know how relevant this is to necessarily employee engagement, it was something you sort of brought up and I wanted to to make sure we touch on before we get to this idea um, of the 12 elements of engagement. But I've heard you multiple times talk about the genius zone. Uh, I know that you, you talk about it a lot. I've seen it in your in articles about you. Um, and in fact, you mentioned like you just you're you love to lead, you love to help. When I was looking, doing some research and I came across that one Globe Street Women of Influence. I can't help but notice they call, they said, and I have to say this out loud, they referred to you as a champion, which I would agree with, a fun motivator, a leadership coach, and a fairy godmother. <laughs> <laughs> so I felt I had to share that we have a, a fairy godmother on the show. But to, um, from your opinion, you know, what is the genius zone and how does it or can it impact um, engagement? Well, I, I refer to the genius zone as we all have gifts that we have that are unique to us. You know, there are things in our world that deplete us. There are things that kind of leave us neutral. And there are things that absolutely fill us up. This, what I'm doing with you right now, nothing, was, I mean, this was my headline today. This was what I was fired up about doing today. And it comes through my teaching. You know, I, I love that quote, uh, the two most important days of your life, the day you were born and the day you knew why. I am put on this earth to teach. And when you think about your genius zone, there are always things that it's like swimming upstream. If it is hard work and it is causing chaos in your life and it is something that is sucking the living life out of you, that's probably not in your genius zone. It's going to take you longer. It's going to cause more stress. It's going to cause more chaos in your life. And so Really, I started on this journey of exploring and defining the genius zone probably in 2014, 15. If you look at the work of essentialism by Greg McCowan, it's really the vital few. Like if I could help people 
just sort out and cut through the chaos and the clutter in their lives and say, what is it truly that fills you up? And it's not necessarily driven by paycheck. I mean, we all have to get paid, but what would you do if money wasn't an issue? And I, I don't like to be, you know, I don't want that to be trite, but your genius zone is that area of your life that just juices you up. So I love the genius zone and I love, and my life is so much richer because I hang out in my genius zone. And I, it makes sense how that could impact engagement in that um, if you feel like you're kind of in your sweet spot and you're doing what you enjoy, um, you're going to be engaged in it. And you're, you're going to, you know, if you feel like what you're doing matters. Mm -hmm. and, and I think sometimes if I, I think that people say that, and I don't believe that has to mean like you have to be solving world hunger. Um, but if you're impacting somebody's day, positive or negative. I mean, that, there's a lot to be said there. So as we, we wrap up, you mentioned this idea of 12 elements of engagement. You wanted to make sure we touch on this. Um, you know, what, what is that? I had never heard of that. I looked it up to see what they were, but um, you know, what is it and how does it actually apply to, to an employee? Well, I, it comes out of the work from Gallup over, you know, 114 countries and, you know, more than 30 or 40 different industry groups. But the reason I am so committed to these elements of engagement is because I want everyone in the audience, whether you are an employee or whether you are an employer, to really start to live out these elements of engagement. The first one is, you know, I know what is expected of me at work. Again, I'm going to go back to clear expectations. So if you're taking notes, I'm going to be the teacher for a minute. Number one is clear expectations. The world, according to Debbie Phillips, calls it precision of your plan and preciseness of your speech. Really get clear about what it is that, A, you want to do but what you're expecting of that team. So number one is clear expectations. Number two, I alluded to earlier, it's I have the materials and equipment that I need to do my work correctly. We see this tied into safety statistics, safety in the workplace. I'm gonna to touch on that in a minute uh, in, a, in a deeper way, but I have the materials and equipment that I need to do my work correctly. Number three, Chris really goes into the genius zone and it's that I have the opportunity to do what I do best every day. I do not need to be doing your financial statements. It's not that I can't do it, but it's gonna take me more time and I'm gonna have more mistakes. So number three is, that you have the opportunity to do what you do best every day. And if you're taking notes, just put in parentheses, job fit. Billy Shoemaker couldn't do what Wilt Chamberlain does and Wilt Chamberlain you know, could be the horse jockey. Number four says, in the last seven days, I've received recognition or praise for doing good work. 
you know, you can look at the work of the love languages in the workplace, but we need to celebrate people more. We need to celebrate small wins. We need to recognize. If you look at Carol Dweck in the book Mindset, she said, when you're giving people praise and you're recognizing them, be as specific as possible. Number five says, my supervisor or someone at work seems to care about me as a person. That goes back to that mental health. That goes back to that check-in that we were talking about earlier in the conversation. Number six is says that there's someone at work who encourages my development. I said this on the, on the first interview. Friends, every one of us needs to have a professional development plan. We need to be able to sit with our supervisor and say, hey, I want to become LEED certified. I want to become well certified. I want to do this. I want to go back to school. I want to, you know, listen to 10 more podcasts this year, whatever. Number seven says, at work, my opinion counts. Employers, when you're asking our team members, what do you think we should do about this? And you just take off in your own direction and you don't listen or try to put some of that stuff into practice, you've just pinched them off. And the next time you ask them and you wonder why they're not volunteering or they're not raising their hand, it's because you didn't demonstrate that you were trying to listen to their opinions in the beginning. So that's number seven at, my, at work, my opinion counts. Number eight, and we talked about this in the very first part of our discussion, the mission or purpose of my company makes me feel my job is important. I do a lot of work in affordable and workforce housing. People wanna do meaningful work. At the end of the day, people wanna feel like they put some points on the board, they made a contribution, they left people better than, them, than they found them. So relating to the mission and the purpose of the company and the organization is, is essential for engagement. Number nine says, my associates or fellow employees are committed to doing quality work. You know, talking about in that book, Multipliers, there's nothing more defeating than seeing a team member getting away with sloppy work and not taking care of the disruptor or not addressing the disengagement is lowering the bar for the entire team. And we wonder why high performers leave the company. It's because some of these things were not addressed, that people just became ostriches and just looked the other way and made excuses for low productivity or low performers. Number 10, I said I was gonna tie that back to safety in the workplace. Uh, number 10 says, I have a best friend at work. Friends, if you look at Southwest Airlines, if you look at best in class companies, most of your best referrals come from people within the organization. 
And you may be saying, oh, well, we don't want each other working for each other or working in the same department. It's not about that anymore. It's about like-minded people know other like-minded people. Um, you know, I don't want to call Brianna and say, hey, you know, Chris got hurt on, on the job. So I have a best friend at work is really tied into higher safety performance standards. Number 11 says, in the last six months, someone at work has talked to me about my progress. This is huge for millennials and Gen Z. You know, a baby boomer, it's fine if you give us an annual performance review. We're fine with that. But younger generations are used to having answers at a click of a button. They want to know how they're doing, and they don't want too many pillows around the conversation. They want the hard truth. So don't just say, oh, you're doing fine. No. You need to say, here's your strengths. Here's what we need to work on, here's this gap, and here's how we're gonna close it. And then finally, the 12th element says, this last year, I've had the opportunities at work to learn and to grow. And I wanted to end with that opportunity for growth because friends, I talk a lot about a career ladder and a career lattice. If we do not have a predictable career conversation. If you look at Kim Scott and Radical Candor, uh, in the book Radical Candor, she says that these career conversations need to be half spent, half time spent on where has that employee performed well. The next part of the conversation, the other half, what are you doing? What can I specifically help with your growth and development? And where would you like to see yourself grow within the organization? So that's a great way for us to, you know, kind of tie a bow around this conversation with those 12 elements. Well, I can't really add anything else to that other than that was um, when I first read about them, I, I thought it was great. I'd never heard about it. Um, hearing you describe it, I think goes a long way. Dr. Debbie, I'm so thankful you've been able to join us again for another episode of the AEC Disruptors. I really do appreciate your insight uh, and just the, the friendship that we got to reconnect. Well, I, I just believe in you. And like I told you in our first conversation, you know where to come when you need help. I really appreciate that. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening to the AEC Disruptors podcast. Enjoy this episode. Leave us a rating or review while sharing with your friends and coworkers. I'd love to hear from you. Send me a LinkedIn request or follow our LinkedIn page and let me know if there's a topic you'd like to hear. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The AEC Disruptors is directed by Christopher Riddell, produced by Todd Wyant, and edited by Eric Daniel. The AEC Disruptors is an applied software production, copyright applied software, 2022.